Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we delve into the groundbreaking work The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. This seminal piece, first published in 1949, is a comprehensive examination of the female experience and how women have historically been designated as the other or second sex in relation to men. Spanning 800 pages, de Beauvoir's magnum opus dissects history, mythology, biology, and personal accounts to expose the subjugation of women and proposes ways for womankind to redefine themselves beyond traditional constraints. Simone de Beauvoir, a formidable French philosopher and writer who lived from 1908 to 1986, is renowned for her influential contributions to feminist philosophy, and the second sex is hailed as one of the most pivotal texts in this field. It is a must-read for feminists, those immersed in the study of philosophy, and anyone who cherishes classic literature and is eager to understand the societal constructs that have shaped gender roles. Join us as we explore the compelling narrative and profound insights that have made the second sex an enduring beacon in the struggle for gender equality. The Second Sex, the feminist classic about how woman has been shaped into the other sex. Introduction, Unearthing the Roots of Womanhood, Simone de Beauvoir's Revolutionary Perspective, Humanity is a Living Ensemble, and within this ensemble, man defined woman not herself but as relative to him. Simone de Beauvoir writes in The Second Sex, unmasking the fundamental dynamic that has shaped the lives of women for millennia. Given its debut in the late 1940s, de Beauvoir's work was nothing short of revolutionary, pushing back against ingrained notions of what it meant to be a woman in society. De Beauvoir wasn't just theorizing without proof. She delved deep into human history, untangling the threads of societal norms that have woven together the tapestry of women's existence. With the precision of a scholar and the passion of a pioneer, she unfolds how across ages, from primeval societies through to her contemporary times, womanhood has been contorted by the perceptions and structures created by men. As one peels back layers of her narrative, the constructs of the other and the dichotomy of imminence versus transcendence reveals themselves as cornerstones of de Beauvoir's philosophy. She posits that throughout the eons, women have been cemented as the other, a fundamental opposite existing simply to complement and serve the default human condition, manhood. Here the notion prevails that man is the primary being, an active force, casting women in the inevitable role of the passive regulated subject. Diving further into the rabbit hole, de Beauvoir discusses how women have been relegated to the zone she terms imminence, a type of existential stasis where women are seen as self-absorbed, static entities whose only purpose is to exist within the parameters set by a male-dominant society. Men, on the other hand, have enjoyed transcendence, vaulting into spheres of creativity, power, and outward expansion into the universe, unrestricted by societal expectations of passivity. These ideas, once incendiary, now light a path for many to understand the long and often shadowed history of gender inequality. Simone de Beauvoir doesn't merely recount a woman's place in human society. She strips down the very structures that have perpetuated the status quo, urging a re-examination of the roles we've inherited and often enact without question. So, as we step into the fleshed-out domains of the second sex, Prepare to have your understanding of womanhood both challenged and transformed. Buckle up. This is not just a history lesson. It's a journey to the very core of how we define ourselves in relation to others and our collective place in the human story. Hey, part one. Dissecting the myths of gender hierarchy. The truth beyond biology and psychoanalysis. It's a story as old as time. The world observes the undeniable physical distinctions between males and females, not just in humans, but all across the animal kingdom, and jumps to conclusions. These observable dissimilarities have been cited time and again 
as grounds for establishing a social pecking order, placing males above females. But is there any real merit to this? Scrutinize the argument, and it quickly unravels. While it's incontrovertible that biological differences exist, males, oftentimes boasting a surplus of muscle, more red blood cells, and larger lung reserves, it is a leap of logic to infer a hierarchy of social roles from these traits. The valuation of physical strength above other qualities is neither universal nor innately necessary for societal progression. Think of societies where violence is explicitly denounced, where might does not make right, and the physical advantages of men do not translate into societal dominance. Progressing beyond biology to the realm of psychology, one encounters the ideas of Sigmund Freud, who suggested that the key to understanding gender inequality lies in the psychosexual development of children. He proposed that during the genital phase, as children begin to associate pleasure with others, often of the opposite sex, there's a divergence. Males continue to derive pleasure from the penis, while females transition from clitoral to vaginal pleasure, theoretically positioning the penis, and by extension men, as the epicenter of desire. Freud didn't stop there. He postulated that females experience penis envy, a sentiment of inferiority stemming from the perceived absence of a penis. But Freud's arguments stagger under their own biases, as he places the male experience as the benchmark, inherently viewing the feminine as the secondary other, deficient by his standard. The reality is neither biology nor Freudian psychology can conclusively justify the entrenched status disparity between males and females. If musculature and psychoanalytic theories fall short, we are left to question what truly underpins the societal gradations of gender. The implications are profound and the questions pressing. If not dictated by nature or psychology, then where does the disparity in status between the sexes originate? How have we come to accept such a flimsy foundation for a hierarchy that has influenced countless generations? It's these penetrating questions that the second sex starts to address, inviting us to dismantle long-held myths and explore the substratum of gender relations with fresh scrutiny. Part 2. The Eclipse of Matriarchy Tracing the shift to a world where women became the silent other in an era where patriarchal structures are so deeply embedded in our cultural fabric, it's difficult to imagine a time when this wasn't the norm. However, journey back through the annals of history and one discovers that matriarchal societies, where women were revered and powerful, once thrived. These communities, often agrarian, acknowledged the sacred power of women as life-givers a recognition that positioned them at the heart of society's functioning. Delve into these early civilizations, and you'll find traces of matrilineal inheritance where children inherited not through their fathers but through their mothers, indicating the importance of the feminine in the lineage. The divine, too, took feminine form, with goddesses like Ishtar of Babylon and Gaia of Greek myth, representing the central role of femininity in the sacred and the everyday. But, as history flowed on, this reverence waned and was replaced by fear, as the enigma of womanhood began to intimidate and bewilder man, seeding the concept of the woman as the other, fundamentally different and apart. The woman was an enigma, an existence outside of the masculine norm, something that would eventually be marginalized as patriarchy began to assert itself. The patriarchal shift is visible through the prism of labor transitions, from communal efforts to the rise of slavery and ownership. Women, previously pivotal in the labor force, were now sidelined, their fertility no longer seen as divine creativity, but rather a passive vehicle for male lineage and inheritance. Philosophers like Aristotle articulated this view, placing the active initiating male principle above the passive receptive female matter. Thus, a narrative was constructed that situated women firmly outside the sphere of creation. They became passive, static, imminent beings watching from the sidelines as men pursued the realms of transcendence, actively shaping the world. 
In this transformation, even the once powerful female deities were not spared. Goddesses such as Gaia were recast into passive roles, while male deities like Zeus seized the active, dominant narratives of society and mythology. Through the lens of the second sex, we're invited to witness the demotion of women from venerated life-givers to occupants of a more confined space. From dynamic figures central to the tapestry of life to shadows within the inner sanctum of society, entities defined by their otherness and by their distance from the action and authority reserved for men. The story of how humanity moved from a matriarchal to a patriarchal society is not merely a historical account. It's a sobering reminder of the roots of inequality and the enduring battle against the relegation of women to the position of the silent other. Part 3. Foundations of Female Subjection How Inheritance and Marriage Fortified Male Dominance The silent architecture of patriarchy didn't simply arise from cultural narratives about gender superiority. It was cemented through concrete societal structures that systematically fortified and perpetuated male authority. Central to these pillars of power were the constructs of inheritance and marriage, revolutionary shifts in societal organization that had far-reaching implications for women. As societies moved from holding property in common to celebrating private ownership, the emergence of familial inheritance placed the control of wealth squarely in the hands of men. These new rules were game-changers. Property and wealth could be accumulated and passed down through the male line, a method that canonized man's role as the keeper of legacy and left woman an outsider to this burgeoning wealth network. This transformation had profound consequences on the social status of women. A woman became akin to chattel, bereft, literally propertyless, and metaphorically, since she was treated more as property than person with intrinsic rights and agency. Her disenfranchisement was nuanced yet drastic, severing her ties to the community and rendering her dependent on the man who owned the property. Marriage, that bastion of societal structure, accelerated the possession of women. Beyond defining inheritance lines, it served to tether the woman to her husband, transforming her into another asset to be controlled and passed between male guardians through her life cycle, from father to husband with little autonomy over her own destiny. The concept of ownership manifested cruelly in various practices across the ancient world. In ancient Greece, the notion of epiclorate ensured that property remained within the male bloodline by coercing a widow into marriage with her deceased husband's nearest male kin. In Roman texts, we learn of even more radical practices, where, in ancient Brittany, for instance, multiple men of a family would share wives, wives who would be denied any claim to property, robbing her of any semblance of inheritance rights. Fast forward through time and the question looms, are the echoes of these antiquated practices still reverberating in the present day? Have we fate un bon en avant made a leap forward? Or does the shadow of these ancient frameworks still darken the threshold of modern womanhood? As the journey through the second sex unfolds, these questions persuade us to examine the residuals of past structures in today's world, urging us to consider the extent to which inheritance and marriage continue to perpetuate or dilute the age-old patriarchal stratagems. Part 4. Strides Toward Equality Women's Evolving But Unequal Role Through History Taking a closer look at history through the lens of women's emancipation reveals a complicated picture, one not easily divided into simple epochs of oppression and liberation. Consider the march of time from the 15th century onward, a period that suggested a bloom of female influence yet still fell short of uprooting deep-seated inequities. As the cultural tapestry of society evolved, Resourceful women sought and sometimes found footholds in the bastions of intellectual discourse, such as the literary salons of 17th century France. Here, amid the flourish of conversation on philosophy and art, women like Marie de Gournay and Madame de Lafayette began to command attention. 
showcasing brilliance that would come to eclipse the renown of their spouses. In the halls of power, too, some women began to assert their presence. The sway of figures like the Duchesse d'Aiguillon whispered through the political corridors of France, deftly influencing the era's prominent minds, such as Cardinal Richelieu. Other formidable women, such as Elizabeth I and Christina, Queen of Sweden, managed the extraordinary feat of ascending to their nation's pinnacles without the shadows of husbands to dictate their wills. Despite these exceptional narratives, a significant caveat looms. These were the exceptions, not the rule. Most women continued to chafe under the heel of a society that consistently relegated them to secondary status. The story doesn't markedly improve as one gazes into the early 19th century, leading to and beyond the pivotal year of 1918. In the United States, women's wages languished at less than 50% of men's earnings, and in Germany, female miners shouldered identical labor for a quarter less pay. Those who eschewed the workforce for domestic duties fared little better. The role of homemaker, an unpaid labor of love, bound them to a life of financial dependency on their husbands, reinforcing the stereotype of the inferior female. Yet for all the shifts in cultural life, for all the discussions in salons and the infrequent rises to power, the trajectory for women as a whole bends incrementally towards equality, not boldly as one might hope. It's this nuanced exploration of progress and persistence, growth paired with ingrained subjugation, that the second sex offers to its readers, urging us to question, even now, how far we have truly traveled on the road to gender parity. Part 5. Divine Decree or Societal Construct The role of religion in designating women as the other religion, an omnipresent force shaping morality, culture and perception, has long played its part in constructing the narrative of gender ethics, often casting women as subordinate to men. This tradition is deeply embedded in the foundation stories of some of the world's major religions, stories that continue to influence contemporary attitudes. Consider the biblical tale of Adam and Eve, a narrative shared by both Judaism and Christianity. It begins with Adam, the first human, crafted to revel in the splendor of the Garden of Eden. Yet, in loneliness, Adam beckons for companionship. Thus, Eve enters the scene, not as an autonomous entity, but as a derivative, born of Adam's rib. The plot thickens when Eve, yielding to curiosity, bites into the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge and tempts Adam to do the same. The implications are severe and echo through time. It is Eve who shoulders the culpability for the downfall of humanity, cementing her position, and all women by extension, as fleshly beings intrinsically tied to sin. This critical juncture sets woman perpetually as the other. Contrasted against the male image of the free and upright creator, women are reduced to vessels of temptation and transgression. The doctrine of Christianity further entangles women in sin by suggesting that, through childbirth, they perpetuate the cycle of original sin, casting every newborn into guilt. Yet, the perception of women as devourers of male vitality is not exclusive to Judeo-Christian teachings. The customs of the Roman Empire offer another illustration. Soldiers were prohibited from engaging with their wives before battle, adhering to the belief that their potency, their very essence, would be sapped by the woman's flesh, leaving them debilitated for the fight ahead. This belief, however, draws a selective line. It exempts prepubescent girls and older women past menopause, individuals deemed non-sexual, from this demonizing view of the female body. Each of these religious stories and societal mandates, varied though they may be, form a tapestry depicting women consistently as the other, a classification steeped not only in doctrine, but in the very way societies have been structured throughout time. The second sex compels us to dissect these threads to question not the divinity of these portrayals, but rather the human intentions and prejudices they enshrine, influencing the way women have been perceived and treated for centuries. Part 6. Dispelling Darkness with Mythical Light How Stories Beyond Religion Shape the Female Narrative 
Religious texts are not the only repositories of gender beliefs. Countless myths, secular stories and lore augment the tale of woman as the other. These stories, both ancient and modern, have provided the mortar for the construction of gender roles through the ages. Consider the enigma of menstruation, a natural biological process experienced solely by females. Myths around this cycle are pervasive and potent. Picture a village in 1940s France, where a belief prevails that a touch from a menstruating woman could spoil the delicate process of curing pork. Such superstitions may seem archaic, but similar sentiments discreetly echo in modern phrases like, it must be that time of the month, insinuating an uncontrollable, almost mystical power over women's emotions and actions during menstruation. Myths, both demeaning and seemingly exalting, often hold undertones that emphasize and solidify women's status as the other. The muses of ancient Greece serve as a testament to this. These ethereal female figures are destined not to create, but to inspire creation. They are the tranquil reservoirs of inspiration for the active creating man, not creators, but conduits for male genius. Hence, they are passive supports to the active transcendent endeavors of men. These mythical figures captivate not only for their inspirational quality, but also for their mystery, which becomes a double-edged sword. They might epitomize the revered, the Madonna, the pure mother, or the fearsome, like the praying mantis, notorious for its post-coital cannibalism, each underscoring a reductive theme of womanhood, from holy to horrifying. The danger in these simplifications lies in their utility. They enable men to dismiss the authentic, complex experiences of women. Rather than acknowledging and addressing the root causes of a woman's frustration or grief, the simplified myth allows men to invoke the incomprehensibility of the female condition, thus sidestepping any real attempt at understanding or reconciliation. Through the prism of the second sex, Simone de Beauvoir invites us to peel back the layers of these myths, to scrutinize the stories that have for so long cast shadows over women's lives. These tales, she reveals, aren't just bedtime stories to lull us into complacency, but powerful narratives that have shaped reality and perception for long enough to warrant a critical reevaluation of their true impact on the fabric of womanhood. Part 7. The Dividing Line of Childhood how gender shapes identity from the cradle onwards. What molds us into the women or men we become? Simone de Beauvoir, through The Second Sex, suggests that the answer lies in the innocent years of our childhood, in the moments following the equalizing event of birth, when society's invisible hand begins to draw a line between girl and boy. In the beginning, perhaps, there is unity, newborns with the same needs interacting with the world in remarkably similar ways. Their very existence revolves around feeding, diaper changing, and the universal solace of sleep. But, as the child grows and is gently nudged from the embrace of infancy, the paths start to fork. Boys are soon coached in the virtues of masculinity, independence, and strength. While girls are coddled, their infancy prolonged through tender nicknames, and a lingering place on the parental lap. The gendered journey deepens as children become conscious of their bodies. Here, boys find autonomy celebrated, their physical ability to stand and urinate a marker of apparent agency. Girls, conversely, encounter the notion of discretion tied to their anatomy, an insidious suggestion that their bodies are something of which to be wary if not outright ashamed. Beyond bodily functions, the distinction is also encoded in playthings. Boys, with their penis, have an obvious and culturally sanctioned object of curiosity. Girls, lacking a physiological counterpart, are given dolls. Particularly poignant is the French linguistic twist, where poupée can signify both a healing band-aid for a cut and a doll. The toy becomes symbolic of nurturing, an early signpost steering girls towards an envisioned future of motherhood and caretaking. It is a nuanced beginning, the starting leg of a marathon that will impose, reinforce, and perpetuate 
the passivity of women in stark contrast to the active roles granted to boys. This cradle-to-grown-up journey marks the genesis of how one is socialized into their gender, a process charged by cultural codes, familial expectations, and societal constructs which collectively script the ebb and flow of male and female destinies. Part 8. From Innocence to Otherness Navigating the Turbulent Waters of Female Adolescence Childhood's unfettered explorations yield to a more conscious divide as girls and boys mature into their separate worlds. For girls, this maturation is a complex metamorphosis that edges them closer to the embodiment of the other, the inevitably distant counterpart of man. During the early bloom of adolescence, young girls might view childbearing with a certain enchantment, seeing the revered role of a nurturing mother through a romantic lens. But this idealistic image gradually fades as girls yearn for the freedoms they perceive in the lives of their fathers, lives that seem punctuated by choice and autonomy. It's a collective yearning so profound that it's reflected starkly in statistics, like those gathered by the English physician Havelock Ellis, which shockingly indicate that the expansive majority of girls wish they could escape their gender destiny, with a mere 1% of boys sharing the sentiment in reverse. The physical markers of womanhood only intensify this longing for liberation. As a girl's body transfigures, breasts budding, curves defining, society begins to act as though she has transformed into something alluring and problematic, an entity to be admired and controlled rather than respected and empowered. Her flesh becomes her definition, further chaining her to the concept of otherness. The onset of menstruation cements this transition. What is often a painful and bewildering experience becomes tangled in the thorns of shame and secrecy. With her first period, her life's trajectory seems irrevocably tethered to her mother's. The arcane and awe-inspiring role of childbirth looms like an unchosen destiny. Suddenly, she must grapple with the gravity of sexuality, the risks and responsibilities it imposes, all reflecting the stark reality that her path is laden with expectations markedly different from those facing her male peers. Through the searching eyes of Simone de Beauvoir, we're invited to follow this passage into womanhood, a journey fraught with societal norms that deepen the chasm between the feminine experience and the empowering narrative often automatically afforded to boys. As the narrative of the second sex unfolds, it challenges us to consider the layered complexities of becoming woman, a process sculpted by age-old patterns and the formidable challenge of redefining autonomy in a seemingly preordained world. Part 9. The Complex Tapestry of Female Sexual Awakening A Journey Through Resistance and Acceptance As adolescence melts into adulthood, both men and women stand on the threshold of a rite of passage etched deeply into human culture, the loss of virginity. Yet for women, this initiation is marked by a far more complex and often tumultuous confrontation with sexuality. The realization that sex with men lies in their foreseeable future can provoke a visceral response in young women, a profound disgust. This reaction can be traced back to the realization that the very aspects of her body that solicit male desire, her curves, her breasts, the flesh that has become an object of consumption, simultaneously represent her submission to a male-dominated narrative. It is the dawning awareness of being perceived less as a full person and more as an embodiment of woman, fashioned and defined by male perspectives. The internalization of this unease can manifest in self-harm a desperate bid to reclaim agency over one's body in a world where women are often cast as the passive recipients of male action. Through this self-inflicted pain, a semblance of control is wrested back however fleeting and fraught. The ingrained dichotomy of sexual roles, where the man is envisaged as the active conqueror and the woman as the passive territory to be claimed, is further reinforced through culturally pervasive metaphors of sexuality. In this linguistic battlefield, men discharge while women receive. Men draw women into sexual encounters 
as though leading them to inevitable surrender, mirroring the literal act of penetration, which society predicates as the pinnacle of sexual experience. Yet despite societal scripting, the truth of female pleasure often diverges from this penetrative focus. Many women find their sexual agency and fulfillment through clitoral stimulation rather than through penetration, which can be uncomfortable or even painful for some. When the narrative centers on vaginal penetration as the crucible of sexual conquest, it serves to cast women's bodies in the role of imminence, the static, the unchanging, which finds its purpose and even pleasure in relation to the transcendent, assertive male force. The second sex thus lays bare the dense weave of female sexuality. It reveals the tension between resistance and the prescribed route to becoming woman, underscoring the need for a deeper understanding of the nuanced and integral ways in which women experience their own sexual awakenings. Part 10. Birthing New Life and Roles. The Dual Nature of Motherhood for Women. Motherhood is often romanticized as the crowning glory of womanhood, yet its reality is a multifaceted experience that can signal both an endpoint and a profound beginning. In the context of Simone de Beauvoir's exploration, motherhood represents the culmination of a journey, the definitive act that confirms a girl's transition into womanhood within patriarchal frameworks. Within this societal structure, Conception is emblematic of a man's ability to imprint his legacy on the receptive female body. Thus begins the deepening of a woman's immersion in imminence, the state of being self-contained and static, as pregnancy demands the prioritization of the burgeoning life within her over her own needs and desires. The early wonder of creating a new life can be swiftly outpaced by the physical realities of pregnancy. The cravings, the discomfort, the transformation of one's body into a vessel for another. Psychologist Wilhelm Steckel interprets morning sickness as an unconscious rebellion. The woman's body attempting to reject the intruder, much like an indigestible meal. Even as on a conscious level, she might feel a profound bond with the life she is nurturing. The birth itself brings a new brand of isolation. Where once the child was symbiotically hers, now the relationship shifts. She becomes the provider, her life wholly orchestrated around the persistent demands of her newborn. The sense of ownership inverts. She no longer possesses the child. Rather, her existence becomes possessed by the constant need to nourish and care for her offspring. Yet, embedded within the intricate process of mothering, there lies an avenue for liberation from the constricting role of being an object of erotic fixation. The transformation of the breast, from a symbol charged with sexual connotations to a vessel of nourishment and comfort, is central to this shift. In breastfeeding, the maternal function supersedes erotic objectification, and a woman may discover a newfound freedom from the scrutiny and desires of men. In the act of sustenance, breasts are liberated from the confines of male gaze, allowing a mother to feed her child without the shroud of shame that might have once accompanied bare flesh in public. Motherhood, as portrayed in The Second Sex, emerges as a paradox, a role that definitively anchors woman in her societal role, yet simultaneously offers a pathway out of objectification. It's a complexity that reflects the myriad ways becoming woman is lived and felt and which underscores the need to understand motherhood not merely as a biological given, but as a profound existential experience with the power to constrain and to free. Part 11. The Double-Edged Sword of Modern Matrimony Economic Safety and Societal Stasis for Women The Sacred Knot of Marriage, a timeless institution with the power to confer societal respect and economic security. Yet for women, the contemporary reality of marriage extends beyond romantic love and companionship, encompassing a vestige of the past that continues to define their role in society. In recent history, marriage has persisted as a structure that reinforces the passive role expected of women. Not so long ago, French law dictated that women must obey their husbands, a stark reminder of the imbalanced power dynamics embedded within the institution. While legal mandates may have evolved, 
vestiges of these traditions remain entrenched in societal norms such as the adoption of the husband's name and religion. Housework, too, chains women to a state of domestic inertia. Despite incremental shifts over time, women bear the brunt of unpaid domestic labor, a fact supported by statistics that reveal the hours women once devoted to household duties. This imbalance not only curtails their time, but directly impacts the gender wage gap, leaving women economically disadvantaged and thus more dependent on the financial support of men. Confined within the domestic sphere, women exist in a realm of imminence, their external ambitions and creative capabilities stymied by the relentless demands of familial care. Society heralds their role as caregivers, nurturing wives, and devoted mothers. Still, these accolades cannot counterbalance the isolation that comes when a woman realizes her household can survive without her constant oversight. It's a revelation that can plunge her into a profound sense of abandonment and purposelessness. Modern marriage, with its promises of stability and partnership, thus unfolds as a complex tapestry for women, offering security on one hand while perpetuating a cycle of dependency and societal invisibility on the other. In deconstructing this institution, the second sex challenges us to peel away the romantic veneer and examine the deeper implications of matrimonial bonds, asking us to consider whether these age-old traditions serve as pillars of support or subtle shackles that tether women to an outdated script. Part 12. The Attire of Expectation How Fashion Perpetuates the Narrative of Female Subjugation The threads of subjugation weave through many aspects of a woman's life, extending into the realm of fashion, an avenue where the female body becomes a canvas for societal expectations and desires. Throughout their lives, women are often compelled to contour themselves into forms designed to captivate the male gaze, a gaze that dictates terms like appealing, attractive, and feminine. Women may find themselves donning restrictive garments, skirts that inhibit movement, heels that torment feet, or corsets that constrict breath, all in the pursuit of an aesthetic that garners approval. Such is the potency of the male gaze that it can reframe a woman's sense of satisfaction with her appearance, conflating it with the measure of how desirable she presents herself to the watchful eye of society. As the years advance, this pressure doesn't wane but intensifies, the expectation to cling to the wisp of vanishing youth growing ever more insistent. Men, whose social worth may be tied to notions like wisdom and experience that accumulate with age, contrast sharply with women, for whom youth and fertility are often considered the pinnacles of their appeal. In resistance to time's inexorable march, women might endeavor to recapture their younger selves through their ensembles, a kind of regression that underlines their once-coveted place in the courtship ritual. The struggle against age persists, a ceaseless battle against the ticking clock that only ceases when, if ever, women relent to the natural process of aging. It is in these later years when their sexual desirability fades from the societal tableau and their roles as caregivers lift, that women can finally step outside the shadow of the other, if they choose to embrace nature's course. Ultimately, it might be old age that imparts the elusive gift of liberation, a late-stage reprieve from the relentless gaze. However, this emancipation comes at such a deferred crossroad that many women scarcely have the opportunity to savor the autonomy they've long been denied. Through this lens, the second sex reveals the metaphor of fashion as a manifestation of the greater narrative, the lifelong tightrope women walk between conformity and self-determination. Part 13. Beyond the veneer of choice, prostitution as a continuation of servitude. In contemplating the societal roles of women, it's crucial to consider those who stand outside the boundaries of matrimony. One might ponder whether the unmarried woman escapes the constructs of patriarchy that bind her married counterparts. However, the reality peels back to reveal that even those seemingly liberated by the absence of a wedding ring may be bound by invisible chains of subordination. Prostitution, 
often misconstrued as a form of sexual emancipation, serves as a stark example of such unchecked servitude. Contrary to the myth that those who sell sexual services are exercising unfettered sexual autonomy, prostitution is fundamentally rooted in the exploitation of women by men. It commodifies desire, casting women once more into the role of objects to be consumed rather than individuals with inherent worth. The existence of prostitution also reinforces the divide between virtue and vice, making a traditional monogamous marriage appear as a sanctuary of morality. Proponents of this societal dichotomy use the stigma attached to sex workers to subtly coerce women towards the safety of marriage, effectively categorizing and controlling female sexuality. Moreover, the choice to engage in prostitution is, for many, a misnomer. It arises not out of freedom, but necessity. The raw, clawing need that comes with a struggle for survival. The French doctor Parent du Châtelet's observations in the 1830s highlight the distressing link between prostitution and the scourge of poverty, a link that remains unyieldingly relevant today. Historically, women who found themselves drawn into the somber world of sex work often came from the ranks of servants. As societal trends moved away from domestic help, many of these women, as previously cooks, maids, and nannies, were left destitute, with prostitution emerging as the harrowing alternative to starvation. By the late 19th century, an alarming half of all women who had resorted to selling their bodies once served in the private homes of the privileged classes. In The Second Sex, the portrait of prostitution painted is not one of unbridled freedom or choice but a continuation of the theme of women's servitude, a societal scheme that mirrors the binding forces of marriage and motherhood. It underscores a grim reality that while the institution and the occupation may differ, both are embedded within a larger patriarchal system that often leaves women with few avenues for true self-determination. Part 14. The Tangled Web of Resistance why a revolution among women is complex. The plight of women, as depicted in The Second Sex, is fraught with oppression and diminished autonomy. But if the chains of subjugation are so heavy, why haven't women risen en masse to break them? The barriers to such a revolution are as psychological as they are systemic, entrenched in the very fabric of social conditioning and economic structures. Firstly, the resignation that many women feel towards their situation is not born of apathy, but of a deeply ingrained belief in their own powerlessness. From childhood, society teaches women that their destiny is not of their own making, but molded by others, particularly men. The narrative persuades them that fulfillment comes from male validation, not self-determination, creating a mindset of dependency that makes the concept of revolt seem almost fantastical. This belief system is reinforced by structural inequalities that persist across the globe. Even in societies that pride themselves on fair treatment and egalitarian values, there are still regions where women's suffrage is restricted or their ability to engage in enterprise is curtailed. Such institutional barriers serve as daily reminders of women's relegated status and make the task of rising up seem daunting, if not Sisyphean. Economics plays a pivotal role too. Many women rely on their male partners for financial support, making the prospect of challenging their oppressors a gamble they can scarcely afford. How can one bite the hand that feeds even if that hand stifles their freedom? For those women who navigate the hurdles and succeed in traditionally male domains like business or politics, the victory is bittersweet. They may have scaled the heights, but the view from the top is of a landscape still dominated by male-designed rules and expectations. Success in a system doesn't always signal the overthrow of it, often it represents an accommodation within it. Thus, de Beauvoir concludes that true liberation for women cannot hinge on individual success stories, but necessitates a collective reckoning. It demands a unified effort to confront and dismantle the economic and societal bastions that maintain gender inequality. It's a battle that must be won on the fronts of legislation, workplace equality, educational reform, and more. 
forging a path to emancipation that is rooted not in singular triumphs, but in communal solidarity and action. Part 15. Perpetuating the Cycle How Love and Narcissism Keep Women Bound to Men In the realm of romantic comedies and beyond, it's a familiar scenario. The woman staying devoted to an undeserving partner, her fondness a shield against the glaring pitfalls of the relationship. This phenomenon isn't just fodder for entertainment. It's a real-life dynamic wherein love becomes a reason, a justification, an answer to the complex question of why women remain tethered to the roles set for them by a patriarchal society. Love wields incredible influence over human behavior, and for women, it can serve as a compelling rationale for accepting subjugation. In a world where female and male statuses are disparate, love offers the illusion of equivalence, a chimera of belonging. As young girls recognize the impossibility of attaining male status, many shift their desires toward what appears attainable, the goal of being cherished by a man. Womanhood's traditional vocations, those of wives and mothers, are pedestaled as peak feminine achievement, pursuits that implicitly require a man's presence. Thus, the binds of love become both chains and comfort, anchoring women in a domain of constrained aspirations. Moreover, the introspective allure of narcissism can at times embolden a woman's justification for subservience, internalizing the male gaze to such an extent that it skews self-perception. Women can become enraptured with their own image, captives to their reflection, echoing the ancient myth of Narcissus. This self-obsession can spiral into a quest to preserve and flaunt one's beauty, as seen in the case of Marie Bashkirtsev, the Ukrainian sculptor who aspired to etch her allure in marble, immortalizing her form. Yet this self-love has a price. In order to manifest her artistic narcissism, Bashkirtsev found herself dependent on the affluence of a wealthy husband, a union that laid bare the irony of her situation. Her self-admiration inadvertently bound her further to the domain of men, the very sphere from which she might have sought independence. Through the lens of the second sex we discern how love and self-adoration can form seductive narratives that justify women's subservience, narratives that mollify the pain of oppression, but at the cost of perpetuating the very system that oppresses them. It is a poignant reminder that the chains of cultural expectation, however gilded by affection or vanity, remain chains nonetheless. Part 16. A Horizon of Equality. Rethinking Gender Relations for a Balanced Future. After surveying the historical and societal landscapes that have crafted the current paradigm of womanhood, our gaze turns inevitably forward, seeking a future where equality isn't just a distant dream, but an attainable reality. To bridge the chasm between the sexes and foster true parity, we must fundamentally redefine the way men and women view and engage with one another. Equality's bedrock is built on reciprocal recognition, where neither male nor female is objectified or relegated to the margins. Consider an underwear advertisement that flips the traditional script, objectifying men for female gratification. Such a scene may offer a momentary sense of empowerment for women, but in essence, it only serves to further the bifurcation between genders. Women must be willing to unchain themselves from the security offered by their historical imminence and step boldly into the uncertain arena of transcendence, embracing a role that is proactive, dynamic, and full of potential. Shaking off the comfort blanket of passivity is daunting, yet it's essential for progress. Just as men are called to resilience and determination, so too must women assert themselves as equal partners in shaping the world. Understanding the conceptual nature of woman is pivotal to this transformation. The identity of womanhood, as the second sex elucidates, is not intrinsic, but a socially orchestrated role that has been constructed over time. As such, it can be deconstructed and reshaped. For women to transcend their historical confines, they must first realize and internalize the fact that their defined roles are constructs 
and then marshal the fortitude to challenge and redefine them. However, dismantling entrenched roles isn't solely the work of women. It necessitates a comprehensive societal upheaval. Legal systems must vigilantly guard women's rights, ensuring they retain agency over their reproductive health through access to contraception and safe abortion services. Furthermore, the societal burden of childbearing should be mitigated by supportive policies like subsidized childcare and equitable parental leave so that women are not penalized for their role in perpetuating the species. At the core of this envisioned future lies a simple yet profound acknowledgement of our common humanity, a recognition of brotherhood and sisterhood that transcends gender, a united affirmation that men and women alike are active participants in the shared enterprise of society. Herein lies the pathway to gender equality, a journey of mutual respect, empathy, and collective responsibility that reshapes not just the lives of individual men and women, but the very fabric of human culture. Final summary. Through the pages of The Second Sex, Simone de Beauvoir illuminates the profound truth that womanhood is not a natural fact, but a sculpted identity, a role shaped by the interwoven threads of history, religion, and myth. Here lies an urgent call to both men and women to recognize that woman, as society has defined her, is a social construct, shaped by ages of patriarchal influence. This recognition paves the way for a world where being a woman is not predestined by biology or tradition, but is a state of being freely defined and embraced. As we venture forward, the possibility of true liberation beckons beckoning us all to rethink and reconstruct what it means to be a woman in today's world, transcending the archaic confines and stepping into a realm of equality, freedom, and mutual respect. The journey to dismantling deeply rooted perceptions starts with each of us, as we collectively redefine the essence of womanhood and forge a society that celebrates each individual's potential, unfettered by gendered expectations. In summary, the second sex is not just an exploration of women's societal roles, but a manifesto for change. A vision where every woman has the space to author her own existence, with the full chorus of human possibility at her fingertips. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then. Happy reading and happy listening.